It's Tuesday, April 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The road to reopening the economy will be a messy fight that the governors of each state will have to handle. We are already seeing protests and lawsuits over stay-at-home orders and people wanting to get back to work. And while the administration has issued guidelines for states to open back up, all the details and the final say is left up to the governors. Another source of conflict could be states moving faster than the willingness of cities in reopening. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us for the fight over coronavirus restrictions. Next, to get back to work, companies are trying to secure tests for their workers. Amazon, for example, is looking for ways to test employees regularly, including building its own testing lab. But there's a big question of the best way to proceed. Will employers need more diagnostic tests, or would it be better for antibody tests? Sarah Kraus, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how employers want to ramp up their own testing capabilities. Finally, a look at the initial stumbles by the CDC in making testing kits. The rollout of the testing kits was initially delayed because of faulty CDC test kits with contaminated components. The worst part of it is that the component that was contaminated was not critical to detecting the virus. It took more than a month for the CDC to get back on track and it prevented the U.S. from ramping up at the beginning of the outbreak. David Willman, investigative reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You're allowed to protest. I mean, they, they feel that way. I watched the protest and they were all six feet apart. I mean, it was a very orderly group of people. And, uh, but, you know, some, some have gone too far. Some governors have gone too far. Joining us now is Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thanks for having me. We're all looking ahead now to this next battleground for reopening the economy. And it's going to be this battle that governors have. It's going to be a messy fight over lifting all of these restrictions that we have in place right now, whether it be just on normal residents staying at home or businesses and how they're going to be operating. And we're seeing all these clashes right now and more are coming. We're seeing some of these protests happening in different states in uh, Ohio and Michigan, the president is tweeting out, liberate parts of the country, you know, liberate Minnesota, Virginia, Michigan. So we're starting to see what's going to happen with this. Brett, tell us how messy this could get. It's sort of setting up for essentially, you know, a fight between some of these protesters who already, after a few weeks of having their states in lockdown and having businesses shut down as part of an effort to slow the spread of the virus, they're already getting impatient. They want to see businesses reopen. They feel their rights are being infringed upon by having governors essentially do what they feel is overreach. These protesters feel is overreach and infringing on their civil rights. So you have some tensions there. And then President Trump is really kind of adding fuel to the fire to an extent by essentially backing these protesters. His administration last week gave governors the power and said governors are the ones who will be able to decide when to lift these social distancing guidelines. But he's really complicating their jobs there by appearing to give more weight and more merit to these protests. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is one of the governors in a particular spot as well with this because she's already facing two lawsuits over the stay-at-home orders from both residents and businesses. It's different from city to city, from county to county. So these governors especially are sort of facing a difficult task where, for example, whether it's California, whether it's Illinois, a lot of these states have sort of these big metro areas where there's a high concentration of cases. And then there are more rural parts of the state where maybe the cases aren't as high. So these governors are kind of having to balance whether maybe they can open up 
parts of the state that are seeing fewer infections. Uh, so it's certainly a difficult task for them. And the White House guidelines don't lay out anything specific as far as, you know, restricting travel from whether it's a county to a county or a state to a state, depending on whether one area has started to lift its restrictions and another hasn't. So that's certainly a concern, like you mentioned. And another concern just about these protests is that we're seeing hundreds of people gather in in these states for these demonstrations. And these are the exact type of gatherings that public health experts say are kind of a breeding ground for the virus, where if one or two people in attendance have it, even if they don't know, they could be spreading it to others and really sort of setting back their own cause and forcing these restrictions to remain in place for longer. There are laws on the books that allow us to restrict constitutional rights when there's emergency public health measures in place. So I know there's this balance that the states have to really dance on when it comes to this, because the protesters are saying, you know, this is unconstitutional, things like that. So they really have to be smart about this. But there are laws on the books that allow us to do those things. There are some precedents that give governors and give executive officials those powers. And like you said, in times of emergency, and this is certainly one of those times, I mean, the federal government has declared a state of emergency in all 50 states. So certainly these governors sort of are within their rights to act and impose some of these restrictions. Now, a specific stay-at-home order, for example, there's less of a legal precedent there. And as you've said, in Michigan, we've already seen some groups take it to court to try and push back. We've heard of conservative groups and allies of the White House sort of urging the Justice Department and the Attorney General to look at potential legal ways to challenge some of these stay-at-home orders. So I think the longer these orders remain in place, there's a greater chance that we continue to see sort of the legal aspect of this flare up and some fights in court potentially. And this is where you see a lot of the political flares come up as well. When the president tweets out, he's tweeting out about states with Democratic governors, things like that. And a lot of these protests seem to be happening in some of those areas also. Are there any Republican governors that are facing some type of scrutiny on this? Because I know a lot of them were very reluctant to issue those stay-at-home orders in the very beginning. That's certainly an interesting aspect. For example, one governor who was really at the forefront of this and very on top of sort of shutting his state down is Mike DeWine in Ohio, who's a Republican. And we've seen protests in these states where there are Republican governors. Ohio is one. There was a smaller protest in Florida last week. Idaho, there's a protest. Texas, there was a smattering of people who gathered. So the protests themselves are certainly not limited to states with Democratic governors, but the president's criticism has very noticeably been limited to Virginia, Minnesota, and Michigan, which are three states with Democratic governors and are states that are considered to an extent at least swing states or states that the president is trying to turn his way in 2020. So in November, that is. So it's hard not to see some kind of political lens on the way the president is talking about these protests. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. You might expect to see primary care facilities or on-site health clinics that companies once had for workers become testing facilities. But again, like the big overarching problem here is getting access to the tests in the first place. Joining us now is Sarah Kraus, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Everybody on top of mind for everybody right now is how do we get back? How do we get the economy going again? And how do we get back to work? Uh, companies are looking to get a bunch of tests for their workers. This has long been part of the conversation. We need to ramp up all the testing, but 
companies are looking to get their own tests, test their own workers, maybe in-house but that also poses a lot of problems. Up front right now, we hear a lot about Amazon and General Motors. They're looking for ways to test their employees. They're looking for methods to test them regularly. But like I said, there's just a lot of problems with ramping up privacy liability concerns as well. Sarah, tell us a little bit about this. So as companies try to figure out when and how to bring workers back to the office or back to the workplace, they want to make testing part of it, but it's really unclear how to best go about it, whether it's most valuable to do regular diagnostic tests, whether an antibody test is the best way forward. So there's a lot of questions about how best to proceed that companies are grappling with and how to act on it once they know that about their workforce. Really, it's all going to be dependent on the company too and their resources. You know, I I mentioned Amazon, they're looking to build their own testing lab. What does that look like? Is that a centralized lab? Are they going to do a lot of mini labs in regional centers? That's a lot of logistical challenges going into it. There's a lot of costs. There's a lot of logistical challenges. You know, Amazon is obviously a uniquely large and well-resourced company with the ability to begin now gathering the equipment it needs to build a COVID-19 testing lab for its employees. I think some of the medical advisors that I talked to said you might expect to see primary care facilities or on-site health clinics that companies once had for workers become testing facilities. But again, like the big overarching problem here is getting access to the test in the first place. And so we and others have reported that there have been shortages of swabs, shortages of the actual equipment needed to conduct the test once it's in the lab. So as of now, there are supply issues that are hindering tests, even for basic frontline police, fire, municipal employees, healthcare workers. So overcoming that is pretty important step towards the broader public having wide access to testing, let alone individual employers. And what the hierarchy is going to look like for that, obviously, healthcare workers, and as you mentioned, some of these other frontline first responders need these tests first and they need to be able to ramp their portions of it first. So after that, then does it become a bidding war for these types of materials needed? I mean, there's a lot of questions that go into it, but it is very much part of the conversation. I think some polls or some uh, companies that you guys have been talking to at the Wall Street Journal, there's over a quarter of the companies are looking for some type of testing for their employees. And there's disagreement among executives, even at large employers, too. Is it most valuable to regularly test people for the coronavirus itself? Or is it better to conduct a broad antibody test to see who has had it and may be immune to it? But even what immunity is in the context of this virus is unclear. So once you have it, does that to say you can't get it again? If you are immune to it, how long does that immunity last? So there's a lot of unknowns about the coronavirus itself that make making a game plan about this really complicated, even more so than the logistics we've already talked about with actually sourcing the test. Let's talk a little bit about how some of this might look in practice. As you mentioned, some of these bigger companies can repurpose parts of their company so they can do testing. But to do that testing, we've all seen those videos of the swab that goes way in the back of the throat. I mean, sometimes the person coughs because it tickles them the wrong way. So the person that is going to be doing this testing will have to be in full on gear. They'll have to be a trained professional, obviously, but also full on PPE, personal protective equipment. And that's kind of at a shortage, too, sometimes. So another challenge there. And then going back to work, once restrictions start to ease, let's say we do have some of this testing in place. Do you make an order saying, you know, older people because they're more at risk, have to continue to work from home. These are some of the other issues that could arise from this. Just kind of uneven rollout. Nobody knows how to do it just yet. 
you know, in the past, there's been a pretty clear line in terms of what an employer can ask you or know about you from a health perspective. You can't necessarily ask about pre-existing conditions or genetic framework or, or pre-existing medical conditions. And with this virus, that is something that dictates how high risk you are or are not in some cases. So it starts to open up these really difficult conversations about employer versus employee privacy and what your coworkers want to be assured of before they feel comfortable coming back to work. So, you know, in the meantime, you have companies trying to stagger shifts, you know, companies that are essential businesses, you know, we wrote about it today, sort of making it up as they go, which is, do you distribute masks to your workforce? Do you try to practice social distancing, both on the factory floor and in the bathroom? How do you, really thinking through each corner of the workplace to try to find some way to limit the spread? In many ways, it's going to be a fundamental shift for a lot of companies in the way they operate going forward. And the privacy concern has always been particularly interesting to me, just for the way you said, you know, if there's an outbreak in the office, people want to know who it is because they want to know if they've been in contact with that person. But at the same time, we have to protect their privacy and their health data. So these are all very tricky situations to navigate around. And it's a very emotional time for people too, right? People are worried about their family and friends. And equally, some people are married to frontline workers who they all go home together at the end of the day. And that is something that has always been the case that your workforce may be married to someone in a different profession that is higher risk than yours. And that becomes relevant in this conversation, but it's not something that an employer would typically have had a right to ask you about or factor into determining whether and when you can return to the office. Sarah Krause, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And it turns out that the CDC actually violated sound manufacturing practices, CDC's own protocol for doing things in the laboratory. And this resulted in contamination of those test kits. Joining us now is David Willman, investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, David. Good to be with you, Oscar. wanted to talk about some of the early missteps that we had with testing in the country. Everybody's been talking about it so much, testing, testing, testing. It's really the only way to track this and get a big handle on it and allocate resources, everything. It's really vital to the way we attack this virus here in the country. And early on, there was contamination at the CDC lab that was initially making these testing kits, and it kind of delayed this whole rollout of coronavirus testing kits. David, tell us a little bit about what we were learning. I think we're all pretty aware by now that there had been extensive delay in getting reliable test kits out to let the nation know whether this virus had made its way into the United States and the extent to which it might be spreading. And the article that we've just published in the Washington Post uh, answers what had been the great unanswered question, which is what went wrong at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the arm of the federal government, which was responsible for designing and assembling the test kits. And it turns out that the CDC actually violated sound manufacturing practices, CDC's own protocol for doing things in the laboratory, and this resulted in contamination of those test kits. Just to take it a couple of steps further than that, the contamination caused repeated false positive results at public health laboratories around the United States, and those results invalidated the test and the ultimate test results. So the test was useless until and unless those test kits could be somehow fixed. So the false positives were occurring in an extra or third component of the kit 
that had been designed by the CDC scientists. And the sad thing is that that component, as it turns out, was unnecessary for reliable detection of the coronavirus. But nonetheless, for more than a month, the CDC refused to change out those kits. And then finally, the CDC told the public health laboratories that were just almost screaming in frustration, you know what, you can go ahead and reliably detect this coronavirus without using the third component. Did they say why they wanted that third component in there? We have not gotten an explanation from the CDC that really explains why that third component was put in there. I think the best conclusion that I can make based on my reporting is that the original designers of the test thought that, well, this might make our test a little more superior because we will rule out that a person perhaps was infected with another coronavirus other than COVID-19. But as scientific experts explained to me, this was a completely unnecessary design move up front. So while the CDC dug in their heels to stick with this third component to their test, this virus not only arrived in the United States, but took off like wildfire. So give us a quick timeline and tell us how this really delayed our ability as a country to test in the immediate. So the original timeline, Oscar, is that on January 12th of this year, Chinese medical authorities made public the genetic sequence of COVID-19. So scientists around the world, including those with sponsorship from the World Health Organization, and scientists at the CDC set about designing a test that could reliably detect COVID-19 with a process, obviously, that gets pretty darn complicated involving DNA testing. So within just a few days, scientists around the world, including at the CDC, came up with a test that could detect COVID-19. But the big difference at the CDC is the scientists there designed in this extra component. And when the first batch, as I reported, was sent out in the fourth week of January to public health labs around the United States, the false positive results started ringing. Now, those other tests that were being done in South Korea, in Japan, in Thailand, didn't have those problems. And we see South Korea, I mean, the magnitude of their testing just to this day dwarfs what we've been able to do in the United States. And what that gives public health officials is the ability to sort of get ahead of where the hotspots might be and where you need to immediately quarantine, put in place measures that limit the potential for human-to-human spread. That component is taken out of it now from the CDC test that we have, right? That's correct. It's a reality that in laboratories when you're dealing with highly sensitive instrumentation, a contamination can occur, but it should be caught by your in-house quality control process before it goes out the door. So that's a failure right there. And then when you start having the false positives ringing the alarm bell around the country, somebody has to call time out and say, wait a minute, we need to do something differently and we need to do it very quickly. But again, it took from the time of the fourth week of January, it took to really the first week of March for uh, these kits to be overhauled. David Willman, investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>